Welcome to the Spawn Chunks, episode number 278, recorded Friday, the 15th of December, 2023. But you should be hearing this on January 1st, 2024. Happy New Year! My name is Joel Duggan, and joining me as always is my friend Johnny, but you may know him better as Pixel Riffs. That's in both 2023 and 2024. Yes, another year of, of Pixel Riffs. Hello! Uh, Happy New Year, everyone. Excited to be here, and this is probably the end of our time travel episodes <laughs> from this last little segment, but to us, it is only the beginning. And our guest is probably equally puzzled by this as we are. Uh, we've already been talking to them on the Render Distance, which you can, of course, get as the extended version of the podcast if you sign up to be a paid patron at patreon.com slash thespawnchunks. Our guest today is Dr. Heather Christie, also known online as Archeoplays. Heather's last visit to the podcast was on episode 211 in September of 2022, and we're delighted to welcome them back. Uh, they are a professional archaeologist, YouTube creator, and streamer, teaching their audience about archaeology through the medium of of Minecraft. You can find them on YouTube, Twitch, and other social media under the name Archeoplays, and we'll have links to YouTube, Twitch, Blue Sky, and Instagram, along with, I believe, a Discord link uh, for joining uh, Heather's community in our show notes as well. So, uh, Heather, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, and also, Happy New Year. You know, archaeologists, we are used to traveling in time, but <laughs> usually backwards instead of forwards. So uh, this is a new experience for me. Yes, we are digging up the future today. Um, that's that's how this works, I guess. But uh, in the meantime, we can at least dig up a little bit of the past of what you've been doing in Minecraft this last week. Although, feel free to share beyond that. Joel and I are going to recap the last week or so, but uh, you've obviously not joined us since uh, September of, I guess, now two years ago. <laughs> um, so, yeah, oh, let, gosh. let, let yeah. us let us know what you've been up to recently. What's new in Minecraft for you? Well, uh, recently I've been, well, I'll, I'll just cover like most recently with, I, I have multiple chronic health issues. So my ability to upload videos is patchy at best. I, I do my best, but uh, health has other plans a lot of the time. So um, my most recent thing is that I actually built 11 different uh, Egyptian pyramids in Minecraft. Um, hang on, let me. I'll put a. I'll put a screenshot in the Discord just now. Oh, please do. Yeah, I would love to see some of these. So the the screenshot that I've put in and that will be in the show notes. Um, there are actually only ten pyramids that are visible. One of them doesn't even render in. And there's one that, like the red pyramid, is the one where you just see the corner <laughs> of it, and the rest of it fades into nothingness. Um, the Eleven pyramids is a lot, but this was for a video where I talk about how to build archaeologically accurate Egyptian pyramids in Minecraft. So the different decisions that you might want to make, and also what to do, like if you'd rather prioritize your story over the accuracy of the build, some things that are kind of like nice compromises for that rather than necessarily, you know, feeling like you're being totally inauthentic. Um, it's, I mean, it's it's your story kind of situation. So uh, I have some other screenshots I can show off as well. And uh, for anybody who is familiar with the structures you can find in Minecraft, you can probably just on site compare these to the desert pyramids that naturally generate in-game and see yeah. how monolithic, how giant these are by comparison to the, uh, the yes. average desert temple or desert well structure. and. Yeah. Pyramids themselves have an interesting history in Minecraft because they were some of the first structures that were added in the early development versions. I'm pretty sure there were pyramids made of a couple of different, I think maybe a brick pyramid might have been in there when brick blocks were added. 
and so it's it's kind of neat that you're you're obviously delving the history of the real world in reconstructing pyramids like this but i think it's kind of neat that there's there's a minecraft connection in there as well yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially because the pyramid is like one of the iconic structures in Minecraft, the Desert Pyramid. So um so it's it's really it was really interesting especially the difference in scale because the the big the the larger pyramids like Khufu's Great Pyramid is 230 meters across at the base. So imagine a pyramid that is 230 blocks across. I mean, you don't have to imagine it. You can also just go watch my video, not to shamelessly self-plug, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I trace it out. It's it's huge. And uh, the, the bigger pyramids that you can see in the screenshot that are sort of off to the left-hand side, the one that's disappearing off the screen uh, to the left, that one is 180 blocks wide at the base. And then the one where you can only see the corner of it and then it fades out of render distance, um, that one is 220 blocks wide at the base. So these are enormous, enormous structures. And yeah, the brick pyramids, it's its really interesting because my community also pointed out the brick pyramid uh, history in Minecraft. And, and those are actually probably closer in scale and also in slope to the, the Egyptian pyramids than the desert pyramid is necessarily. But um, my understanding is that there isn't, they're like, they're solid pyramids. If I'm remembering correctly, the brick ones. Yeah, yeah, they have no interior rooms, at least according to the the Minecraft Wiki yeah. article. This was obviously well before my time. We're talking inf dev versions, so this was back yes. in 2010, uh, <laughs> before I even knew Minecraft was a, a yeah. thing. So uh, yeah, yeah. And very, I'm saying very, very they old. are, but they're they're no longer in Minecraft. So so I should yeah. be speaking about them as if they're the past. Um, but yeah, and you can imagine after uh, well, it's a couple of things, looking at how to build pyramids in Minecraft was a really interesting question. There are a lot of interesting questions I run into of how to build thing in Minecraft and Egyptian pyramids, canopic jars. How do you build canopic jars in Minecraft? And the decorated pots are perfect for it, actually. And because you can put like a player head on top of it. You can actually do different styles of canopic jars from the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom. And if you want to the New Kingdom, but there weren't any pyramids in the New Kingdom, well, they weren't built in the New Kingdom. So you can buck the trend and make your own New Kingdom pyramid if you want, put, you know, random canopic jars in there. Um, so so that was really cool to to be able to use the new decorated pots. But uh, But there's also, I've put another photo in the Discord also where the beginning part of the pyramid texts is on the walls in the signs. So uh, the pyramid texts were a series of uh, spells and enchantments and also just kind of like instructions for the pharaoh to transition from the world of the living to the world of the dead and, uh, and to do that safely. So the pyramid texts, there's a certain amount of, you know, I present to you this person and list all of the, you know, uh, family history of, of the individual, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's and and their differences, you know, at first we start to see them on well, at first we don't see anything. So the the there's there are a couple of different images with granite structures, like granite rooms that have a tomb in them or a sarcophagus. And the one that doesn't have anything on the walls, that is actually the king's chamber at the well, hmm, hold on. The one that has the pyramid text is Khufu's chamber at the Great Pyramid at Giza. The one that doesn't have them is actually slightly earlier. Um, so initially we don't see stuff on the walls and then we do see stuff on the walls and then it leaves the walls again and goes into the sarcophagus. So uh, so figuring out how to decorate a sarcophagus with pyramid text was also interesting. There was a lot of map art as well. Um, so 11 pyramids plus a bunch of map art 
I I was getting tired of uh of of pyramids after a while. <laughs> so uh so then in the last like few weeks I've been building up a brickworks in Minecraft, which is a place where they made bricks. Uh it's I mean it's kind of self-explanatory, but if you've never had to think of a brickworks before, that's, you know, not necessarily intuitive. One of the things that I was thinking about was the size and scale of the pyramid that Cubfan135 built. I think it was season yeah. seven of Hermitcraft. And I think it was the Pyramid of Giza that he based his off of, at least the scale. I mean, he did all kinds of fun stuff inside and made his yeah. own designs. And and I, and I think also uh, just for simplicity, I think he just used like stairs for like a smooth yes. 45 degree angle outside which from your screenshots and they're very pretty would be incorrect like so do we what's the angle on uh so, i mean i'm assuming they're all different right a lot of the time they are um so in the in the screenshot that has all the pyramids in it there's one the one that kind of disappears off to the off the left hand side of the screen or the image that one you'll actually notice has two different angles so yeah. that's what's called the bent pyramid. It's my favorite pyramid because it's the pyramid where we start to see them figuring out how to make pyramids. So um, so that pyramid originally rises at a 56 degree angle. And then they were also converting another pyramid, like a step pyramid, which is um, basically a pyramid that looks like a bunch of steps leading up to the sky. The one that's kind of in the background in the middle of the image, that's a step pyramid. So Snefero was trying to convert one of those into a true pyramid with the smooth sides. And uh, he realized uh, that he was doing it wrong, basically, and it collapsed in the middle of construction. So when that collapse happened, the bent pyramid, the one off to the left-hand side, was also under construction with that 56-degree angle. And we think that either the bent pyramid started also showing signs of instability and or the collapse happened at the same time, where they said, we shouldn't be building this steep anymore. So Snefero actually changed it to a 43 degree slope. I didn't want to do a 43 degree slope in Minecraft because that's basically, it's, it's like going in 11 blocks for every 10 that you go up. And I was like, I don't want to keep track of that many numbers. So I made it a 45 degree angle because, <laughs> because of sanity reasons. So, so for the rest, for, for, it's like fit 47 meters of the height of the bent pyramid is that 56 degree angle. And then the, the last 57 meters of that pyramid is that 43 degree slope. Um, the red pyramid, which is the, the other one that's kind of fading into the distance in that image, that was also built by Sneferu. He built like three or four pyramids, <laughs> well, three pyramids. Um, and that one, he started at a 43 degree angle. So that was that was kind of the first of the pyramids. And the development of pyramids from in Egypt, from the step pyramid to the true pyramid. However, the the Great Pyramid at Giza is um, kind of how do I how do I frame this? They because they didn't measure things in meters; they measured them in in palms and cubits and such. So um, the Great Pyramid at Giza it goes up five blocks for every four that it moves inwards. So so it's actually probably the the slope well I don't think I have an example pyramid of that slope but it's probably closest to the kind of larger pyramid in the foreground the one that doesn't have the beacon on it <laughs> the other the big one right next to the one with the beacon on it that's probably closest to uh to the the great pyramid and then the one with the beacon on it that's also another uh totally viable scale uh, or slope 
possibility. So basically, the majority of pyramid slopes are somewhere between about 45 degrees and about 56 degrees. Um, there are some that are actually steeper, even though Sneferu felt that that was too steep. Uh, but those tend to be, a lot of the time, they're sort of smaller pyramids. And the interesting thing, okay, I can talk about pyramids for a while, so I will stop after this, I promise. But um, one interesting thing about the Middle Kingdom pyramids is that they were made with a mud brick structure inside of them. So, so basically, they would make the structure out of mud brick and then cover it in sandstone. And mud brick breaks down really easily because it has organic material in it. It's got all that straw in it and then the straw decays. So it leaves air pockets and, and the mud bricks kind of crumble. So the, we have a lot of Middle Kingdom pyramids, but we don't necessarily know exactly what angle they rose at or exactly how high they were because they've broken down. It's one of those projects that I would almost give up on on mathematical grounds because I wouldn't be happy with the fact that we can't make a specific angled slope in the game. <laughs> and so your commitment to following that through and still trying to reach the same height to width ratio yeah. is is admirable. And honestly, even the pyramids where obviously the, there's a point at which you have to just do a block going up instead of having it step inwards it still yes. looks really cool because the re repeated pattern is so yeah. consistent and so that's actually encouraged me to take another look at projects like that and go is it just going to look cool if i power through and and eventually get to the point where the repeated pattern reinforces itself somewhat because honestly a lot of these pyramids just look really really neat shapes yeah i was really surprised that the slopes where you do just have to go up a block at a certain point i was really surprised that they look as good as they do um but yeah at the scale of the pyramids they uh they work really really well and even with the smaller pyramids i mean there's some that are a little bit tiny and and chunky but even then they're kind of cute so the 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 two main ones that i built in are the one with the beacon on it and then the one that's directly across from it that's a bigger pyramid um, and those are just to show the different options of like what is inside a pyramid, because that differs depending on the time period that the pyramid was built in, whether the pharaoh is buried in there. Usually the pharaoh is buried in a pyramid, but sometimes they're not. Um, and then there's there's whether the pharaoh's uh, spouses are buried in the pyramid, whether their family is buried there and then stuff with, you know, where their soul is and and a whole bunch of other options. Um, so I would say the 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 smaller the pyramid with the beacon on it is on the smaller side that's 41 blocks across because i failed to do the math correctly so it's 41 and uh, and the bigger one is 76 blocks across i was aiming for 40 and 75 but um you know i counted wrong and i wasn't about to rebuild the pyramids <laughs> so so we we deal with it as 41 and 76 instead um but the the 75 ish range is a good range for a pyramid if you want to put stuff inside of the pyramid i think whereas 40 it's a little bit small yeah i i think that's great advice for the pyramid builders out there and i i expect everybody else is quite happy that they don't have to build a beacon base this large in order to get their beacon to work yeah yeah so johnny what have you been up to this week in minecraft uh, this week, I have abundant access to slime blocks thanks to the slime farm I was working on last week, and so I'm setting up a few new contraptions in my world. The only permanent one so far being a piston door which uses slime and honey blocks to move the portions of the door around. 
uh, in my storage hall, which doesn't lead through to anything yet. And I've had various suggestions from, you know, you should put villager trading in there to, you know, that can just be a great place to expand the storage into if we end up with a bunch of new blocks and whatnot added in in future. And so far, I'm not entirely certain what I'm going to do with it. It might eventually lead down to a copper aging machine if I end up building one of those around my, my current base area. Um, but there's there's all sorts of, of options there. We'll see. But at this point now, I'm in the stage where I can make flying machines, which make, means if I want to make a large-scale bamboo farm, I can have a flying machine shearing off the bamboo instead of relying on the sugarcane piston and observer kind of farm that I've got set up before now. And uh, yeah, there's there's lots of other bits and pieces that I, I plan on doing. In the meantime, though, I'm working on a permanent tree farming area so I can stop spreading pods all, all over my front lawn. Uh, when I have two by two spruce trees growing there. So I've now got sort of over the hill from my storage building, a set of plots, which are, they end up being spread out one block apart so that the trees can more easily grow naturally. And I don't have to spend bone meal on them, but there's room for a seven by five set of saplings to be planted on each of the ones that just require a single sapling. And then it's something, it works out something like four by three or four by five um, with the the two by two trees like spruce and and jungle and whatnot, and I I wanted to put this together in a fairly neat way, but then I realised there are now ten different wood types that we can mess with, yeah. not counting bamboo. But we've got you know mangrove and cherry to add to the overworld six that we had before, and then we've got the ones from the nether that I technically still count as trees, even though they're giant fungus, and so. I can't arrange it into like a, a neat little three by three square because it's like the mangrove is sort of off to one side. But the mangrove also grows differently because it takes up a lot of space with the leaves and the roots and everything. And I find that growing them diagonally from each other when you grow the propagules means that mm -hmm. the roots don't end up spreading and destroying the propagules that are ready to grow. So yeah, I, I'm I'm sort of working that out in my head logistically what I need for the, the future of this tree farming area and moving in composters to deal with all of the nether wart blocks and allays to help me compost the mangrove leaves. So all I collect from those is the propagules and the, the wood blocks and maybe the roots as well. So there's a few logistical challenges to it that is more than just how do I chop wood with axe? But uh, I'm getting there. That's my current stream project. And it's probably going to wrap into the survival guide video style with the inclusion of a sorting system for it all and then shulker box loaders so I can easily transport all of the wood logs back from there to my my storage system where the uh, the, the eventual goal is to have a variety of storage systems that I can just chuck stuff into and it'll automatically process it instead of just having to feed into one double chest like I do right now. Pro tip which you probably know but people at home may not I deal with the spruce spreading puzzle issue all the time and I uh, discovered that uh, it has a limit quite um, short vertically. So if you just go up like four, three, four blocks and then plant your saplings that high above the ground, it won't affect anything. Yeah. Yeah. Because it can't reach. I've got each of these set up on separate platforms, which have a bit of a horizontal distance. I think there's maybe three blocks or so between them. Um, I don't have a great deal of screenshots right now, but I can probably find one to put in the show notes. And then... Um, that's where the water streams are running, but then each of the platforms is different heights. Effectively, they're on a slope so that the water can just flow down instead of having to rely too much on, you know, ice and signs and, and directing the water streams that way. So uh, the way I've got it set up right now, I think the spruce is elevated a little bit and shouldn't mess with the, the other stuff. But 
overall, I, I decided to effectively moss carpet over anywhere that wasn't growing space for the saplings because that way if i'm spamming bone meal to grow some of the saplings i don't end up accidentally misclicking on a grassy area and then producing a bunch of grass and flowers and wasting that piece of bone meal um, right and so for for the trees that will allow it to grow when there are other obstructions nearby uh which is really just the single saplings the acacia the uh, azalea that I'm using for oak farming and the birch, those are all surrounded by moss carpet. The other ones are all surrounded by path blocks and those won't convert into pods all either. So yeah, basically using non-standard blocks is, is a great way of uh, giving yourself planting space whilst avoiding pods all spreading too far uh, through other means. I've really been finding the mangrove trees hard to harvest. I don't find yeah. it an enjoyable experience at all, especially because now we've not been growing our own. Uh, on the server, we have a really large mangrove swamp and we've just designated the north tip, which is the farthest from the portal to be like, just start mining from here and head south. And we're never going <laughs> to, we're never going to, you know, destroy the whole thing. Uh, and there are some nice parts in the mangrove swamp where people, if they wanted to build, then we're not going to be anywhere near that. Uh, but I just find like the constant jumping in mud or water and then dealing with the roots and then trying to like, you have to fly with rockets up to the top of the tree and you can't find the the wood because of the angles that it grows at inside the tree. So then the leaves never decay. Conversely, the cherry wood trees, I find very easy to chop down. They, they grow in straight lines. The branches grow mm -hmm. in like straight lines. They're usually connected at right angles, not 45s. And so you, you don't find that the, the wood hides very well. Also, it helps that the cherry leaves are bright pink and the cherry wood is very dark and you can really spot it quite easily. And uh, we, I haven't tried to grow cherry trees like on purpose uh, on my own. I've only just, again, we found a couple of small cherry groves and just, just designated one as like, this is kind of in a weird spot. I don't think anybody wants to build here. We'll just use this as like the one that people mine from. And then... There, I think there was another one with a village near it that was very picturesque and, and folks thought, actually, let's leave that one alone and that could be where people might want to build. So we don't have to deal with it that way. But I, I did notice the difference in the newer cherry tree compared to the mangrove tree. They're much easier to harvest. Yeah, I, th I think that's definitely feedback they took on board after mangrove trees, but also yeah. mangroves themselves. Obviously, the root structure is so dense, like the canopy of mangroves can get very dense. I think that's effectively true to life as well whereas yeah. i think we know true, of cherry yeah. trees as being fairly kind of not solitary trees necessarily but they they seem a, a little more accessible a little less tangled than mangroves that are growing in such a uh a, an entangled environment heather it sounds like you've had some experience with mangrove trees as well yeah, they're my least favorite one to harvest, but they're also one of the prettiest wood types in in my opinion. They're mm -hmm. they're probably not my top wood type. Spruce is still like best wood type. Um, typical of of a Minecraft builder to say spruce is the best one. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, mangrove is really it's really pretty, and it's such a pain to harvest. I I do find I agree, picks with you saying that growing them on a diagonal helps. Because I find that the the because they grow kind of weirdly, if you get them on the diagonal, then you end up with more of the of the log blocks closer to each other. So you're digging through a little bit fewer leaves to harvest them. But they're still they're still a bit of a pain. I do enjoy harvesting them with allays around, even just one if I hand them some mangrove roots and be like, you go collect these for me. Um that makes it a lot 
more fun than it otherwise is. But yeah, it's, it's I, I usually there's so much that I want to build with mangrove wood. And then I'm like, mm, I don't know if I want to harvest it, though. <laughs> yeah, it, it's I think it's uh, the, the only other thing that comes close to mangrove is the tall oak trees that have about a bazillion leaves and then yeah. like seven logs. <laughs> and you're like, why yeah. is this? Why? Why are there so many, so many logs uh, missing from this? It seems like it should have a lot more branches. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I sort of get that from Azalea as well. But Azalea at least has the decency of just leaning to one side a little bit. And if you grow a large yes. area of that, then you at least get a ton of a ton of oak that you can chop down. Yeah. And Azalea at least has the pretty leaves. I mean, cherry leaves are also very pretty. Mm-hmm. Mangrove leaves I'm less enthused by, not because they're bad specifically, but because they're very different in terms of like the texture of the leaf block to other leaf blocks. So you can't easily mix and match them with, say, like flowering azalea leaves or something like that. So I tend I tend not to use mangrove leaves for much of anything. Yeah, mangrove leaves are the droopy ones, as as Joel yeah. knows well. I think a lot of the, the screenshots of West Hill that he shared, I think uh, there's a lot of mangrove leaves there. And yeah, I think it, yeah. it, it works well in certain like ecology certain in certain biomes and stuff i think they can they can work remarkably well if you want to build a willow tree then there's there's no contest but then if you're trying to blend them with other leaf types which have a more organic or diagonal pattern to them you find that mangrove looks very geometric by comparison and it's hard to blend yeah 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 they kind of have to be their own thing they work really well in spruce biomes where um, other blocks tend to have like a weird minty color um these have a dark dark green Mm. and i've used them for thickets um combining them with like fence gates and other uh other things to have like a low lying bush that looks like you can't get through it and then also like weepy kind of trees that hang over water and things like that but i've got a couple of gardens in like this in the spruce taiga corner of the west part of west hill and they worked really well um i don't remember if i combined them with anything i feel like i did but i don't know how i might have done it i don't think spruce leaves really work because spruce leaves are like Mm. the older leaf design and um and they don't they don't tend to look as good but i've done other leaf combos like i know that jungle and azalea look look really good together because jungle kind of looks like a dark version of azalea so but i can't remember what i might have used i don't think it was jungle it would have had to have been something that changed color because if it didn't change color then it wouldn't have worked with the mangrove in, in the spruce biome right and I mean, for me this week, I really have not been back uh, to Minecraft because I'm still waiting for 1.20.4 mods to get up to date. Um, so kind of working in the background on that kind of stuff. Uh, and in that light, I thought uh, in place of like an update, I'd, I'd ask a question to our viewers and, and anybody here, of course, that, that might know. Uh, I think I might be looking to write a mod or learn how to do that kind of stuff in the new year. And so if anyone for myself and for any of our listeners... If you have any resources, you know, sites that teach you how to do it, videos from content creators that might show you how to do it, uh, learning how to make a mod properly in a way that you can keep it going forward, I'd love to know uh, because one of the things I'd like to do is either be able to tweak an existing mod or make my own or just kind of give the Citadel, which has been around for a while now, a series of kind of in-house things uh, that keep with that vanilla spirit but like give us the tools that we want to go forward and then rely less on other people for updates because like as there's more people streaming on the citadel now 
we're kind of stuck waiting for mod authors to catch up on mods. And if they don't catch up, then we have to find a replacement or just abandon the mod altogether. Mm. So, so yeah, so we're waiting on, on stuff like that. When I do return, it's going to be more river shaping and landscaping. I didn't quite finish the East River last time I was playing. So it's just going to be those final touches around the landscape outside of West Hill. And then when we do sort out the mods, it'll be the, the remaining tasks, which are mostly in the keep. Like everything else is done in West Hill outside of like some fixes. Um, but any kind of like thing that has been left blank, the upper levels of the keep are still empty. And the I want to do like that distillery in the basement and the dungeon and stuff like that. And that just requires me to move all of my current storage into the crypt underneath the graveyard. And I haven't done that yet. So I'm kind of biding my time by doing all the landscaping outside of the town that doesn't require anything from 1.20.4. It's all just basic Minecraft stuff. So that's kind of where I'm at with Westall. As a reminder, uh, for folks who are part of our patron community, we do have a pretty active modded group in there. There is a mod-minded chat uh, that people can share advice on, you know, regular modded stuff that already exists, existing mods uh, and, and gameplay from those or, you know, questions and feedback in there. Some people have even made their own mods from within our community and uh, are able to share them there. We also have the Resource Mine channel where people tend to leave short and sweet links to resources that can help you in your own Minecraft journey. So if anybody from our community wants to leave advice for modding uh, for Joel in those, uh, I'm sure that will be more than welcome. And if anybody from the broader community wants to write in, the email address is spawnchunkmail at gmail.com. If you can suggest some resources, we would love to hear from you. And there are some new resources being tested in Minecraft with a little bit of news off the top here. The Armadillo has rolled into testing. An early version of the Armadillo is coming to testing for Minecraft Bedrock Edition Preview and Beta and Java Edition Snapshot this holiday season. This was published on December 13th. The Armadillo is a savanna dwelling mob that's easily startled. When an armadillo detects a nearby threat, it rolls into a very adorable blocky ball and won't uncurl until the threat is gone. Threats include zombies, zombie villagers, skeletons, and other undead mobs like the wither. Armadillos eat and breed with spider eyes as their preferred food. They drop scoots, which can be crafted into wolf armor. Unlike turtle scoots, these are currently dropped periodically when an armadillo is brushed. Wolf armor can be equipped to adult tamed wolves and can only be removed by the wolf's owner using shears on it. The protection it provides is equivalent to diamond horse armor. The armadillo came to Minecraft Bedrock Edition Preview 1.20.60.23, and that was released over the holiday period. Yeah, uh, so obviously this is a time travel episode, so the armadillo is all new to us, but we will have already discussed it on the main feed a couple of weeks ago, so bear with us as we give our sort of initial thoughts on the armadillo. And we may as well start with you, Heather, as well, since you're the guest. Uh, how do you feel about the, the armadillo's introduction? Did you vote for it at Minecraft Live? What were your overall thoughts on the armadillo? I, I did vote for the armadillo. Um, I was less concerned with like the usefulness of the mobs because all of the mechanics I was like well I guess that could be useful but like it wasn't really appealing to me necessarily as a player so I have spent a lot of time building in a savanna biome in the last year or so and savanna biomes there's not much to them and it would be really I felt it would be really great to have a mob that that brings a little bit more life to the savannas so I'm really happy with the armadillo um, I do recognize, you know, it, for people who were interested in the utility of some of the mobs in the mob vote, the armadillo is probably not necessarily your top choice. 
And that's that's obviously going to be a bit disappointing. But I think they're very cute little guys. Um, the 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 ball rolling animation is also really cute. I, I enjoy cute things. And uh, and yeah, no, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. I do find it interesting. So um, like when armadillos curl up in real life, they tuck their their heads and their legs all into the ball because it's that's the whole point of the of the armor is to protect, you know, especially things like their head. So it is funny to me a little bit that the the curling into a ball, you still have their head and their legs kind of pop out a little bit. Um, but I think that might that might be Minecraft saying, let's go for some adorableness or make it clear that this is still like a living creature rather than something to mine or something like that. Yeah, I think it makes sense that you you see this and you go, hmm, that blocks at a weird angle. Wait a minute, it has a face, and then you yeah. can you can sort of get the the impression if you're if you're new to the concept of the armadillo. And yeah, I I agree. As somebody who built in the savanna for the entirety of Empires season two, I I do like them bringing a bit of new life to the savannas, and they've got a nice color palette for it as well. There's that kind of earthy. Yeah. Naturally, armadillos look like this a lot in real life anyway, but they've got that kind of almost terracotta-y clay sort mm -hmm. of color, which I, I think is a uh, a solid pick. And it's kind of interesting seeing them in just the straight-up pictures that they've added to this article uh, that we'll have linked in our show notes um, and comparing that to a video because unless you see them in motion, you don't get the full story, right? You don't get the animations yeah. and you don't get their heads moving around to make sense of the ears because the ears, like the ears of a lot of minecraft creatures are just kind of flat they are like infinitely thin um <laughs> and so from the front especially as they blend into the shell of the armadillo they kind of look like horns in a weird kind of way but then when you see mm -hmm. them at an angle or you see them in movement you're immediately like oh okay those are just big cute ears um yeah. so so i think it, it takes a little bit of getting used to but don't judge a book by its cover in this case and uh, judge the armadillos when you see them in game mm-hmm I had the same uh, reaction to the ears. I actually preferred the ears, how they had them in the concept art, which actually had a third dimension to them, similar to wolf ears or mm. piglins. Mm -hmm. And I think that they would probably look less like mistaken horns if they had that that 3D like angle to them. I know that armadillo ears in, in like real life are a lot more pointed. So that could be one of the reasons why they're trying to go with like a, a flat pixel plane for the model rather than something that has a, a 3D kind of thickness to it. Um, but I just I think the the thing for me is the 3D models on the ears, especially like piglins and wolves, I feel like it makes Minecraft feel more modern. And so anytime there's like a flat pixel plane mm. in the game, I feel like it looks dated. It reminds me of like the first 3D games I played as a young person. And and I, I find that it looks more cartoony and fun when they're um when they've got some more volume to them. I I actually will disagree on the armadillo ball. I think the whole thing should go like just tuck right in. And 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 like they could maybe have something to indicate a, a texture on it. Um maybe even have like the top of the head protrude or something. But I like the idea of the whole thing kind of going up into a ball. And I know it's early days, but it would be fun since the armadillo doesn't do a lot. Uh, it would be nice if the animation had a little bit more character to it. Like maybe they had like mm. a little hop. Uh, I know that when bees uh, go in and out of bees nests and beehives, there's a fun cartoon pop noise that happens. It would yeah. be kind of fun if an armadillo made some sort of um, either a pop or they could even have it sound um 
you know, in the same way that like chain mail or like some sort of like clink or, or, uh, like a, a shell, you know, seashell kind of clatter or something, you know, like a, a, a curl up and a curl down. If, if there was a musical element to it, you know, like it would be high pitched and quick as it's scared and then low pitched and slower if it opens like that kind of stuff. They could add a lot of character there. I think that yeah. would be fun. Um, cause it does, it does really go into that stance a lot because if you're the player and you're not sneaking, they tend to hide from you as well. From what I could tell, I watched, uh, an Exumavoid video where, um, he was walking around and looking at armadillos and he said they were hard to find and, and that, you know, you have to be very kind of sneaky and quiet and calm when you go up and, and deal with them. And uh, I thought that was, uh, thought that was interesting that you have to be so, so careful about it. And, uh, I'm, I thought it was also cool with the way that they use the brush to brush the armadillo and get the scoot because similar to the mood from the sniffer where like you don't kill the sniffer to get the drop. You have to follow it around and, and pick up the things that it finds. It's the same idea with the armadillo. They're not, it's not going to drop anything for, for harming it. It's going to drop anything by interacting with it, which I think is a cool way to add something that's cute to the game. Cause no one feels good about, you know, having to remove for a game mechanic, a cute mob, um, yeah. you know, even, even for like pigs and pork chops, like I don't even tend to do that. You know, like I just, it's, it's funny how, um, how that happens. What we, which weirdly I've got no problem with cows. <laughs> like I just, I don't know what it is, uh, about that in the game, but like I, to each, to each their own in terms of their lines that they'll cross to survive in Minecraft. But it would be cool if they added some more character to it for me. I like everything else about it. Like, I think the scale is right. You know, I agree with the color. I think it's cool. I did like the idea of the mob having like a bigger section in the front but honestly like that could just be like a different type of armadillo um it could be just uh it could also be a problem with the animation to go from having like a large section in the front and a small section in the back mm. it might look good when the animal's walking around but then logistically curl up, yeah. yeah you have to like change the model or you have to it doesn't look as good and i think the idea of prioritizing a tight little ball air quotes when they're rolled up into a cube is is better than yeah. prioritizing how they might look walking around. Yeah, I think it's it's really neat, going back to the brushing thing, I think it's neat to have a mechanic that works like sharing a sheep. And yes. it's kind of the same mm, thing mm -hmm. where, you know, you yeah. can harvest this from it renewably and it can be part of the animal's sort of natural life cycle without it having to be slaughtered. And that's, that's cool. And it also... Uh, works differently to turtles in that to get turtle scoots they have to grow up which is something they only do once and so you end up with overpopulation of turtles which naturally yeah. isn't isn't a problem for the local like you know the the the, the creatures of the area because you know video game the the uh, environment is not that fragile and it's not programmed to be that way but you do end up either flooding your world with entities which can potentially cause lag problems due to the amount they have to do pathfinding calculations or you just end up killing them because there are too many of them and then you just feel bad about killing turtles so i think it is nice that there's a middle ground to be found here it also reflects their biology in a certain way because I was, I was reading up a bit about this and because they are reptiles turtles shed the outer keratin of their shells similarly to how you'll find snakes and other lizards shedding their skin yeah. uh, and that's part of reptile biology whereas armadillos don't do that because they don't feel the need to shed their skin they shed sort of you know waste and dead skin cells in a different way and so it makes sense that there is a different way of handling them compared to 
waiting for a baby armadillo to grow up and it just kind of drops a, a segment of itself. Um, and then, of course, you get those to be made into wolf armor, which players will want to get a decent amount of if they're the kind of player who uses wolves regularly. And being able to get a bunch of scutes from a small enough population of armadillos seems pretty sensible to me. Um, to briefly touch on wolf armor... Um, I think I want to see more iterations of it to introduce more customization because right now it is just plain. It's the same sort of leathery color as the armadillo itself. And I don't necessarily dislike the design, but I would like the design to see a bit more uh, player customization. We already have tamed wolves with dyed collars, but I think the pet lovers out there really want more from the feature of being able to put some clothing on their dog. So as I've mentioned before, it would be great if, even if armor trim can't get involved, then at least some kind of uh, color-coordinated setup could be achieved with dyes, similar to how we have leather horse armor now, just so that you can differentiate between dogs at, at a glance and uh, so that people can enjoy dressing their dogs up in more colorful ways. I agree with the wolf armor. I think that it's it just looks like a brown dog. And yeah. uh, well, in some cases, people might want a brown dog. It just it doesn't really sell itself as armor. And uh, I did find the knee pads a little bit much like it feels very noisy. It doesn't have a clear silhouette when it's actually on the wolf. And also they don't have knees. So um, there's that. I I really hope that we can get the dying or at least have some sort of different, you know, model to it or i i found it very flat and i know that wolves don't have the same texture layer that the player does where you've got the skin of the player underneath the armor and then the armor goes on over top so you end up having this kind of 3d effect where you look like you're actually wearing something whereas you know this is just part of the wolf's texture from what i could tell if they have it outside the wolf it's not as apparent and so it just looks flat up against the wolf texture yeah the um the other thing to say about the wolf armor is that it being sheared off is a really good mechanic because of course players might want to change up the armor at some stage they might want to remove the armor from the dog when they're done exploring and i think it'd be a great time to apply the same behavior to saddles on striders and pigs because yes. with a a saddle on a horse a donkey or a mule i believe with llamas as well although llamas are a gray area because you don't ride them in the same way that you do other mounted animals um, but with striders and pigs, you can't go into an inventory the way you can with the horses and the other rideable mounts because they simply don't have one. They don't have storage and they don't have any other modifications you can make to them. And the same is true of pigs. So while it's good that you can access your inventory whilst you're riding around on, on those mounts, you can't take the saddle off them afterwards. And in order to get the saddle back especially in the early stages when you're still riding around on a strider to explore the nether, you might only have one saddle. And so I think it's usually, you know, either going to be you let that strider go and just hope that you get a saddle by the next time you need to use one, or you corral it somewhere and save it for later. But I think it'd be great to be able to remove the saddles from striders and pigs just by using shears on them. And that creates consistent behavior amongst those mobs and means that you don't have to, you know, shrug and and kill a strider that's helped you out on that particular gameplay session in order to get mm -hmm. the saddle back so you can use it elsewhere i agree being able to take saddles off of pigs and striders would be fantastic not that i have huge numbers of saddled pigs or striders in any of my worlds but you know if i wanted to it would be great to <laughs> to take the saddles off but i i also agree with the wolf farmer especially because a lot of people do like the look of the wolf 
um, model without the armor on, but may want to be protecting their wolf if they're getting into some kind of combat situation to at least give them a little bit of a buffer. And I also agree that that customizing the the armor would be really desirable if we could dye it different colors. At least that would be that would be really nice. It would be cool if we could use armor trims on it, but I suspect a lot of people might not want to use an armor trim on wolf armor just because that feels expensive for for customized wolf armor. But maybe maybe some people are perfectly happy to do that, or maybe with say some of the more common armor trims, that could that could be something that people are interested in. I've talked about it on previous shows that I'd be happy to do it as somebody who primarily plays in a single player world because the mm -hmm. only use for armor trims after I've got my own armor fixed up would be to have other things to trim. Um, yeah. And I've made do right now with putting every set of armor trim on every piece of iron armor just so I can see what each of them looks like and have a kind of display. But beyond that, yeah, I don't see myself interacting with armor trims unless I lose my armor in, you know, circumstances like that have happened to me recently where I, yeah. I, I need to craft an entirely new set. But even then, once I've done that, it's back to, well, these armor trims are kind of gathering dust at that stage. So I'd like to see them being used more broadly and maybe that's something that can be brought in later. So in the Exumavoid video that I watched, uh, the wolf armor did not protect the wolf from a creeper blast consistently. And so oh. that would be some feedback where like, if it's going to protect the wolf, protect the wolf, <laughs> you know, from yeah. what is probably going to yeah. be the thing that you're going to, you know, that's going to happen because you, the player is going to see zombies and skeletons. You're going to be able to hear them attacking the wolf and be able to intervene. But like a creeper blast is something that you may not see coming. And that would be really disappointing given like how hard it is to find an armadillo, the time it takes to get yeah. the wolf armor, get a wolf, tame a wolf, bring it with you into an adventure only to have it blown up by a creeper you didn't see drop out of a tree or whatever, you know, in, in, in a cave, that kind of thing. So that would be, that would be disappointing. I did like the fact that they eat spider eyes. So it's a good example mm -hmm. of using something that I have far too many of because I've got a spider farm. And I don't know why I decided to keep them, but I have them. And so it's nice to have an older item in Minecraft being used to feed and breed up armadillos. And that's cool. But it made me think like to add more character to the armadillo that doesn't do a whole lot. It would be fun, even though maybe not realistic, if the armadillo scared spiders in the same way that yeah. creepers are scared of cats, that kind of thing. Or even go after spiders like the armadillo is scared of everything except for spiders it just yes. sees a you know eyeball charcuterie board and says let's go you know <laughs> I, I feel like that would be a really fun way to like add something in there and, and because so many people in real life don't like spiders or scare are scared of spiders to have this cute little animal be just like i gotcha <laughs> you know i think that would mm -hmm. be really fun it was something i noticed in the description that there's spiders are not in the listed things it finds threatening, which makes sense. If you're eating spider eyes, then you're not going to be that threatened by spiders themselves. And uh, I agree, it would be really nice to have some kind of effect on spiders, especially because it adds a little bit of utility to the armadillos themselves that players who maybe voted for, say, the crab and are disappointed in not having the, the claw might mm -hmm. feel is a little bit more usefulness to the armadillo. Um, especially for players who don't necessarily focus on wolves or wolf armor. See, I was wondering if their ability to curl up and defend themselves when undead mobs are around might be useful for some sort of mob detecting system. And ah. I, I'm not sure, like, if they do, like, a little hop, which I believe they do 
in the in the the footage that I've seen when they get scared by something maybe they can hop up into the hitbox of a tripwire or something like that and maybe that can indicate you know a light turns on when there's a zombie nearby um the utility of systems like that is questionable because in terms of mobs sorting and stuff like that people already have different ways of luring zombies out towards villagers mm. and and that kind of thing right and skeletons are already scared of wolves so you can manipulate them that way but i i do wonder if it might be kind of fun for a uh you know j- just just a, a little contraption to set up in your world having like a a detector for whether or not there's a zombie nearby being triggered by an armadillo of course that ultimately means probably putting an armadillo in a box somewhere which is <laughs> is the natural uh the natural progression for any minecraft mob that gets used for redstone is we need to put this in a one by one box so it can't get out it stays part of the mechanism and it can't yeah. hurt anything it reminds me of the flintstones right you know where they had the pterodactyl playing the playing the records uh, yeah records <laughs> yeah, and yeah, they had yeah. uh, elephant was helping to wash the dishes and i feel like there was some rodents or armadillo like creatures in cages somewhere doing something i don't remember what they were for yeah. but there was always something i think it was like an upside down bird that was used to like trim the grass and stuff it was always really whimsical and weird I like the idea of a mob detection system, especially if we combine it with the suggestion to have there be like a noise associated with them hopping up and curling into a ball because the I I have hearing issues as well. So I have I play with subtitles on all the time. And a lot of the time, the only way that I know something is around is if it pops up in the subtitle. So um, but if there's no if there's no noise necessarily then it doesn't necessarily pop up in the subtitle. So I wouldn't necessarily know that an armadillo is around. And it would be really nice if there's a little noise that you can hear, you know, if you've got armadillos around your base and one of them curls up, then you know, oh, maybe there's a skeleton or something nearby. That would be really cool. Well, uh, by this point, uh, given that this is a time travel episode, we've probably had a few emails discussing the armadillo and what people think <laughs> of it. But of course, we want to encourage people to continue sending their thoughts into our usual email address. Speaking of which, we are going to be skipping over the email portion of this because we have a lot to talk about in our main discussion today. But if you're a patron, stick around for the render distance. We got an email from a patron that we'll probably be revisiting there. Uh, In the meantime, though, we want to talk about archaeology in action, because as we mentioned at the top of the show, last time Dr. Christie joined us for an episode, archaeology was not even announced as a confirmed feature for Minecraft 1.20. I went back to our show notes and realized that it had been recorded in September of that year, so before October and all of the announcements and everything, but Mm -hmm. we were talking about this shelved archaeology system that maybe will make a return in future, and now it's been in the game for a full six months. So aside from it being, you know, a much belated return and and we're very happy to have you on the show we wanted to talk about how we uh the three of us and the community in general uh feels about the implementation of archaeology uh so why don't you start off by giving us an overview of what you felt when you saw archaeology was being added to the game and how you've had fun interacting with it since it's arrived in the full release well, uh, when I saw it was being added to the game, I do believe my first reaction was to immediately message you on Discord, Johnny, and be like, oh my god, archaeologists coming to Minecraft! Um, and you were in the States, so I was like, I hope that you don't have notifications turned on on your phone, I'm not waking you up at like 3 in the morning or something. But uh, yeah, I, I may or may not have exploded slightly, because uh, it's it wasn't something that I thought would happen that quickly. And uh, and yeah, I've been delighted with it. There, the The really... The only major critique that I had at all in the entire process was the early naming 
of of pottery shards instead of pottery sherds, which is uh, the the technical term in archaeology. We use sherd to mean pieces of pottery, and it is generally pronounced sherd instead of shard. So it's s h e r d. It rhymes with nerd because archaeologists are, and uh, and it's it really does specify pottery. So whereas if you've got different pieces of glass, those are glass shards. If somebody's talking about shards, it's usually for something like glass instead of pottery. So, but the, uh, you know, we, a lot of archaeologists kind of voiced that in various ways and the immediate next iteration of the, the snapshot, it was already changed to sherds. So at this point, I, I love the archaeology mechanics. I'm very, very happy with them. Um, there's, there's relatively little that I would change at this point in terms of the actual mechanics of archaeology. So, uh, so yeah, I can I can gush about the archaeology system all day if I want to. It's uh, it's easily the best archaeology system I've seen in a video game, like hands down. That's awesome. It's it's so great to see a field that you care so much about being so well represented, and that's that's really great. Yeah. And yeah, you yeah. you did just remind me because I was trying to like line up in my head why i was in the states when obviously we covered minecraft live and then it of course it's just occurred it to me like, that that the features weren't all announced at minecraft live last yeah. year and they got rolled out slowly so this was announced in february so yeah it would actually have been a little a little while later that we found out that archaeology was arriving so yeah and and i think that's that's great to have something that we've we've talked about on the show a while ago at that point and people have speculated about returning uh, making a, yeah. a reappearance um we've even had a few more recent additions to the features that were added with archaeology so in yes. the most recent updates in 120.3 obviously a bit of a fix in dot four as well we now have the ability to add stuff to decorated pots to use them as storage items you touched on this briefly earlier and you know yeah. the the fact that you can now use them as uh, canopic jars in your pyramid project and store something in them um yeah. i'm not, not sure quite what we have in terms of like organs that you could put in there but i don't know maybe a spider eye at this point um <laughs> yeah <laughs> just, probably just a, a couple of eyes in there um i i think that's Stick another player head in there or something i don't know <laughs> I th yeah I, I i think that's that's a great change because it not only increases their value to players as sandbox creatives but also increases their value as would-be archaeologists because we've got the trail yes. not the trail ruins the um trial chambers sorry i knew it started similarly and then it, <laughs> it varies the trial chambers obviously have a bunch of supplies stored in the decorated pots which serves as the typical legend of zelda okay break the pot and it's got some yes. gems inside mechanic but can also lead us to speculate about why those items were stored there and what the purpose of the structure is in the first place right yeah. I also love that the pots only store one type of item as well. So it's the whoever's put that item there, they have specifically put that specific type of item in that specific pot. And we have so much variation with the decorative pots in terms of what can be on them just based on the different combinations of pottery shards. So it's it really opens up this whole world of new things to stick in archaeological sites if you want to make some in Minecraft. And it's the when when I was making my I made a video that was kind of reviewing the initial snapshot features. And one of the things I mentioned there that I've mentioned in a few things since is that I would really love to see a crafting recipe for suspicious sand and suspicious gravel where we can put an artifact of ours inside it so that if we wanted to make our own archaeological site, our friends could come along and excavate the site and find the things that we have put there to tell the story we're trying to tell. 
and I feel like putting stuff in decorated pots is Minecraft's way of either saying, right, this is a compromise and, and this is the best we're going to be able to do, but it's still really, really good. Or it's potentially a test for, okay, you know, now we've got decorated pots that have objects in them. Is it possible to start thinking about using that mechanic for things like suspicious sand or suspicious gravel? And that's that's fantastic to see. I really love it. Do the suspicious sand and gravel have a loot table that could be adjusted by either mods or uh, map makers to have different items inside? I believe um, so. Yeah, like you can you can yeah. add stuff using commands in vanilla. I don't think you need to mod anything for it. And in different structures, when they get placed on world generation, they have individual loot tables because you'll find yeah. that an ocean ruin has a different table of which pottery sherds you get and what loot you can get in terms of you know diamonds and other other items mm -hmm. the desert temple has tnt pop right up on. or gunpowder in some of them so they definitely have that within the game itself but you can't just place a suspicious sand from the creative mode menu and just expect yeah. it to have items associated with it already you do have to do a little bit of extra work for that yeah so we had an email from Cosmic, who is uh, one of the moderators in our Discord and a long-term member of the community. Uh, and Cosmic wanted to talk about Minecraft archaeology in the classroom. So uh, they say, mm -hmm. I've always, I've loved the introduction of archaeology into Minecraft even more than I thought I would and in ways I didn't anticipate. What I've loved most about it is exploring trail ruins with others, either server mates or my children, and the fun conversations and learning opportunities that has led to. From exploring a trail ruin with my kids, we looked up a whole ton of archaeology stuff on YouTube, including how a real archaeological dig is completed, so we can look to incorporate this in our next trail ruins find. I'm interested to hear if Archaeoplays feels that having this mechanic in Minecraft would make a good teaching tool, and if it's something they could imagine being used in a classroom setting to give a good hands-on experience. So I'll obviously let you address those points, and then we also should talk about something we did a little while ago that we've already talked about a little bit on the podcast before, which is that we all got together on a stream that you were kind enough to host, and we... Yeah. All, uh, and, and along with Ulraf from the Minecraft development team, we dug out a trail ruins ourselves and, and kind of discussed the finds and speculated about what each of the finds meant for the individual structures that we found them in and so forth. So yeah, first though to, uh, to Cosmic's email, how do you feel about the potential for archaeology being a mechanic that could be used to teach in classrooms? Oh, absolutely. Like a million percent, yes. <laughs> it's, it's such a good resource and such a good mechanic. And it's it's obviously not identical to archaeology, but it's so close to it, especially in terms of making you kind of slow down and and really look at what you're doing, which I, I've worked in museum education for 20 years. So I've worked with school age kids in heritage settings. And uh, I don't know if those of you who are aware of children uh, are aware of this, but they don't necessarily like to slow down <laughs> when when doing exciting things. So I really like that even though the trail ruins are exciting and it's interesting to figure out what's there, the mechanics make you kind of take take a minute, take a breath and figure out what you're doing. But also I really love the the mechanics of being able to mark where the find was and and label what it was that you found or put it in an item frame on a block or something where you found it. I think those are really great. The I since archaeology came out in Minecraft. I've had people sending me things. I love it when people do this, by the way. People send me stuff on social media or in my Discord and things, 
and they they tell me what they found in their trail ruins and what their interpretations of their trail ruin was. And so I have like, I don't know, like 15 to 20 of these, you know, effectively site reports for Minecraft trail ruins, which are fantastic. And it, it's it's delightful just to see what people are doing with their trail ruins as they excavate it. I've also seen some people turn them into museums themselves. And I've seen people excavate the full trail ruin and then where it's like open to the sky where the terrain, like the normal terrain level is, they've just put a level, a layer of glass so that people can walk on top of it and see the whole thing without falling into the structure itself. And that's that's exactly something that we do in archaeology. That's that's if you um, a really good example is the Jorvik Viking Center in York, England. Uh, it, they they have a glass floor that is over part of the archaeological excavation. So um, so it's yeah, it's I, I love it. It makes me really happy. And in terms of teaching inside of a classroom, one of the big pushes in heritage and archaeology and museums is to get things in classrooms that are exactly like this immersive experiences that kids can actually participate in. Um, we do do a lot, or certainly in, in Scotland and, and well, the, the UK in general, we do a lot with schools as much as we can. So we'll bring them into excavations. If there's an excavation near a local school, we'll bring the local school in and tell them what we're doing. Um, but it's harder with the physical archaeology. It, you, you kind of unfortunately have to be pretty sure that there's not much there in order to let younger kids dig it because if they if something messes up you can only dig a site once so you don't want to miss things if you're letting a seven-year-old dig the site but at the same time you want the seven-year-old to have some kind of experience digging because otherwise they're they're not going to be as interested in archaeology and they're they, they're gonna want to dig usually so um so having something in minecraft that's digital and virtual and in a program that a lot of kids already know how to use that's phenomenal. It's absolutely wonderful. I think one of the things that came up while we were doing our stream with Ulraf was the fact that suspicious sand and suspicious gravel mechanics dictate that if it drops a block before it has had the item pulled out of it, it will break entirely. And yes. that encourages you to slow down and be a lot more considerate about how you're treating the environment and what you're hoping to find there compared to the previous methodology with a lot of minecraft structures which is to rush in clear it as quickly as possible eliminate any obstacles to what you're doing and escape with the loot like a you know the the, yes. the the folks who prefer to speed run these kind of things can loot a desert temple in a matter of seconds and just leave yeah. with exactly what they want which is simply not possible with a trail ruins because of the nature of how the items there are stored uh, in in massive air quotes here because they're stored within blocks that you have to be very careful yeah. about handling and i think that's such a fascinating thing for game developers who might be concerned about you know keeping the pace up a lot of the time in a lot of action oriented games you see people just wanting to make traversal smoother or making the actions of the game easier because that typically helps the player feel more powerful and in Minecraft, they're going in the opposite direction with features like this and encouraging players to slow down and think more carefully yeah. about what they're doing, which I think is is wonderful. Yeah. The, the other thing I really love about the Minecraft archaeology mechanics is the variety of things that you find. 
is very different to the the types of things that we normally find in Minecraft structures. A lot of the time, as players, we're going into structures to see what they have and to take what they have and to leave, you know, as you just mentioned. But in Trail Ruins, the, most of the stuff you find is going to be some types of dye or bits of glass. And, uh, and a lot of players were initially really disappointed that it wasn't more useful to the player and more valuable. And the thing is, is that that's, that's accurate to real archaeology. Real archaeology, you're not finding, you know, gold crowns every day of the week. It, I've never found anything gold at all. Um, so the, the super shiny stuff that you, that you think of with archaeology, those are fantastic things to find. But the majority of what we find is just the things that everyday people left behind, the things that that you and I use every day without without necessarily thinking about it. Um, and uh, it, it's interesting to see the the perspectives of people change as they've heard me talk about archaeology in real life and archaeology mechanics in Minecraft. Um, I've had several people say, oh, I didn't think about it as you know, this is the stuff left behind by ordinary people in the past. I was thinking about it in terms of loot tables for a structure. And now that I've had that explanation, now I now I know what to expect. I actually kind of like that it does this, you know, and, and that's not to say that people who are still wishing it had more shiny stuff are in the wrong or anything. It's perfectly valid opinion to have. Um, but I really like that they don't. I really like that it's a lot of kind of everyday items mixed in with some of the more valuable things. And the the other thing, and this is very much a personal thing, but as an ancient glass specialist, I cannot stress how amazing it is to have the the glass that we find in Minecraft archaeology. I've never had glass be a possibility in any archaeology system in any video game ever. And uh, the only exception being Stardew Valley, where they have one glass object and it's just called glass shards. And it's like regular kind of normally colored glass it's there's i mean it's interesting sure but like it's not in minecraft we have different colors of glass that you find in these trail ruins and they have different chances of turning up depending on the loot table so you get you know red stained glass and purple stained glass and blue stained glass and this is again I, i'm a glass specialist and i get happy with glass but still like i've excavated so many of these trail ruins and i still get ridiculously happy just seeing that i've found some glass and i i really like that that minecraft is showing not just that we're finding everyday objects but the kinds of variety of everyday objects that we find and it leaves it open to interpretation as well because the buildings themselves are already quite colorful with the amount of yes. colored terracotta that's used in their construction, you find mm -hmm. that you're speculating as you go about whether or not it was a window or, you know, it could be any number of other glass objects, but players are most familiar with glass panes being used in yes. existing structures as windows. So you can use them in the restoration of the building if you want to, or you can put them yeah. in a chest with the rest of your finds and speculate about what else it could have been used for in the society. There yeah. are buildings that are made out of clay bricks which i think almost mm -hmm. universally are considered effectively like the kilns or maybe the brickworks to go back to uh, what you were saying earlier about yeah. uh, set setting one of those up for yourself there are campfires and coal blocks and things in these which you typically end up finding a bunch of bricks and other building blocks in suspicious gravel around mm -hmm. and so typically yeah th those buildings it's fairly easy to intuit their purpose and then the other buildings have a variety of stuff in that you can you can kind of 
you know, put your own interpretation onto. But from what I've gathered from different people, no two of these ever really turn out the same. I've no. only found one in the survival guide world so far, and I'll throw a bunch of screenshots of that in the live chat so that people can see those. Um, and it turned out completely different to the one which we uncovered on our stream. There were different blocks yes. used. There was different formations. All of the objects and artifacts were in different places because we had branded the tower in the center that sort of forms the the uppermost part of the trail ruins, the first thing that you really encounter on the surface. Uh, in our stream, we decided that was the DJ tower because yeah. that's where we found all of the music <laughs> discs. Whereas in mine, I didn't find any of them there, but I found four or five in a lower building that was on the sort of street that you find made out of cobblestone. And so I thought, okay, that's the record store. Yeah, and so, yeah. you know, you can, you can come up with different stories about each of these structures on the fly, which I think is a real strength of these structures. As you're going through them slowly, it encourages you to tell a story about what everything is in there and why it's there in the first place instead of just seeing it as a, a cache of valuable items to take away. Yes. And I, I did make a video um, a little while ago talking about different excavation techniques that archaeologists use out in the field um, and testing them basically on the trail ruin. And most of them don't work very well on the trail ruin, um, but there is the the style of excavation that Pix's images show and the style that we did on the stream, that's called open area excavation. And it's still like 100% the, the type of excavation I would recommend doing with trail ruins. There are other types where like it divides into a grid and then you have little boxes that go down. You lose way more artifacts in that than you do in the open area excavation because you're often digging next to blocks that are suspicious sand or su suspicious gravel, and then they fall and then they break. So uh, the open area is definitely the way to go. Um, some people may have felt that it's a little frustrating with the open area excavation or, or just trail ruins in general. They are huge. So if you set up your chests in the wrong area, you know, then you have to move everything and that's a little bit of a pain. I do have a tip for that. Uh, it's it's a type of, it's an excavation technique that is like the least amount of excavation archaeologists do while still excavating. And it's called coring or auger coring. And basically what you can do with the trail ruin, the area that you see above the ground before you dig anything, move about 10 to 15 blocks in each cardinal direction from that midpoint and then dig straight down I know never dig straight down in my car. You can do the too wide thing if you want, but it's the the thing about trail ruins is that you're you're very unlikely to run into lava in the sort of depth that you're going to. If you dig straight down for like 25 to 30 blocks, you either will hit absolutely nothing or you will hit another building or hopefully you will hit the road that goes through these trail ruins and that way once you hit the road you'll see which direction it's going. The tower itself sometimes does have a road going behind it, but it's not nearly as long as the road going in front of it. So once you've figured out where that road is, you haven't really dug much except for a single, well, a couple of holes straight down, and you can set up your chests somewhere, you know, like, I don't know, 20 to 25 blocks away from, you know, where the where the corner is going to be for your, your trail ruins. Well, 20 to 25 blocks away from the midpoint, maybe, of your uh, of your trail ruins so that it, it you, you don't end up having to move it while you're excavating. Um, and while I'm on the topic of tips for these, I will just warn people uh, and pics your your picture show and your episode showed this really well. 
a, a large amount of these trail ruins are underwater sometimes. So um, I recommend having respiration and aqua affinity and hopefully maybe having some sponges uh, at hand if you are that far advanced in the game. You can do it without all those things, but it's going to be more painful, <laughs> basically. Um, so uh, with with Pixies, you can see that it's kind of going through going into a river. Um, but also the the bit that is visible on land may also just spawn in the water in an ocean. So I've put a where I'm going to include a photo where I'm standing on the visible bits of the trail ruin and it is in a lukewarm ocean biome. <laughs> and the reason for that is because the the red block that's in the photo, that is actually in the jungle biome still. So it's generated out in the middle of this ocean. The entire thing is underwater. And uh, I did not excavate that one because, <laughs> because I didn't want to. Um, but it is something to keep in mind if you're looking for trail ruins, particularly in jungles, because they're really difficult to see in jungles anyway. Have a look along the water and you might see either the bits of, of the buildings that Pix had in his river, or you might even end up finding the, the bit of the trail ruin that's at ground level. Um, in the water itself. Yeah, that was my first time in the series bringing in a conduit, and I was planning on mm. introducing them in a different episode, but this one left me with no choice. <laughs> I basically yeah. had to do that or brew up an entire <laughs> like single chest of water-breathing potions, and the conduit just helped with visibility as well, which I think was yes. great for being able to go down there and check that the suspicious gravel was suspicious gravel. That's the other thing that I find about lots of them being underwater is that creates even more of a hazard when it comes to losing any yes. suspicious gravel because you update water next to these things and sometimes they're arranged so They'll that they fall. fall and break. And yeah. so I, I didn't want to sponge out a bunch of the water in case the sponge went through like a diagonal mm. or something into the, the, the houses and, you know, completely dried out the center of those and caused any of the gravel to fall. So I had to be extra yeah. careful and was just doing the area clearing method of you know, bringing the whole thing down from uh, the surface, which was a task, but I think it was worth it because I think I only lost a couple of things along the way and it was just because my shovel was too efficient at digging some dirt out. So Yeah, you did really well with yours. I was impressed at how little you you lost because <laughs> I, I tend to assume I'm going to lose like between five and ten artifacts at least um, when digging one of these so, uh, so I'm impressed it wasn't nearly so many for you. That was really good. To this day, I still get people commenting on that episode saying, oh, you, you found all of the Trail Ruins um, armor trims. Like I managed to get, I think, five in yeah. total. I, I got a duplicate of one of them. And yeah. Uh, yeah, everyone was very jealous of that. And I think <laughs> I think it is purely down to my caution. Like I, every time one of them breaks, I think, well, that was the valuable one. You know, that was yes. that was the one that yeah. had the Shaper armor trim that I'm still missing or something like that. But yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very happy happy that I was able to get all four armor trims from that though because I have yet to find another one of these purely by <laughs> searching for them and and I haven't done a great deal of like you know continuous searching but mm. I, I I flew around my world on a stream uh you know traveled a, a great distance and I only found that by sheer chance quite close to an area that I had already been but just like a little further into the forest and they are yeah. they are typically in such densely forested biomes they're in birch forests tigers 
uh, jungles that you, you typically don't see them. And so the fact that you saw one that was out in the middle of the ocean, I mean, makes sense that that was the one you would find because it's a, a, a beacon of material, basically. Yeah, I was is... like, what's that red thing out in the water? Ex- exactly, <laughs> so, like a, like a yeah. buoy of, of stuff that the village has left there for yeah. you. But also, yeah, it puts you in a bit of an awkward situation where you have to decide, do I go with the one that's going to be really awkward or do I spend another... Or do I find a different one? An, yeah. Another another few hours potentially in your world searching for them, which yeah. that's that's why chunk base was invented. That's why people take shortcuts like that. Exactly. But I was very exactly. happy having stumbled upon mine organically. Yeah, no, it's it's the finding these sites can be very difficult because there's only so many blocks that are above the the terrain level. So you only have like between, I don't know, like five and ten blocks that are visible, maybe. And especially in jungle biomes, those can be inside of one of the bushes in the jungle so that you don't see anything at all. So it's it, they are very difficult to spot. And um, again, for people who are listening and wanting some archaeology tips, one of the things that we did on that stream with Ulraf is we did something called walkover survey, which is where you sort of fan out in you know equal distance. So maybe every 10 blocks, there's another person and you all walk in a straight line for a while and then there's a certain point when you agree to stop and people basically look for the trail ruins and and identify them that way and i have had a few people say that that has helped them significantly um, in terms of reducing the amount of time that they have spent looking for trail ruins so if you're struggling try going through a little more systematically and and see if if that's well, if you're struggling and you don't want to use chunk base, because otherwise just use chunk base and, and that's perfectly acceptable. I have definitely used chunk base to find some of these sometimes because they can they can be really difficult to find. Especially in jungle biomes. You, you've posted yes. screenshots a couple of times of finding them yeah. in jungle biomes underneath the foliage, like, you know, yeah. under under a, a pile of leaves. And I just go, how? <laughs> how is it? Yeah. How is it possible? I'm just not observant enough to track those when they're in, in the big old jungles. <laughs> In fairness, that one I didn't spot naturally. That one, I, I was searching for one, and I was like, I feel like there's got to be one in this jungle. And then I just ran a command because it had been three hours, and uh, and that was where it was. And I was like, oh, well, I was never going to find that one. So, so uh, But I like to use it as an example of just how buried they will be in, in the jungle biomes. There, It's it's absurd. <laughs> there's to a point where I barely even look for them in the jungle biomes now just because it's really difficult to spot. Joel, have you had a chance to uh, excavate a trail ruins in your world? I, I expect, expect not since you've mostly been focused on West Hill, but has anybody else on the Citadel maybe gone out and found one? I think that a couple of the Citadel members have gone out and done it, and I don't think I was available to join them at the time. And and you're right, like because of the long-term project and the long-term world, it, it really hasn't been high on on my list. Yeah. I, I mean, I really enjoyed the the collab that we did with Alraf and, and Heather, of course, and I liked the slowdown of like taking your time and and digging it up. And what I found interesting about it was less what we were finding because I kind of land in that camp of like the stuff that we're finding is not all that exciting. Mm -hmm. Uh, But from an archaeology and architectural standpoint of uh, like unearthing the trail ruin and seeing what it looks like, how it was structured, uh, what buildings might have been there. I like the idea of a Minecraft project where you can go down and either reconstruct the trail ruin where it stands and bring it back to what you think or interpret it might have looked like or translating it, like taking a bunch of screenshots or a video or whatever, and then rebuilding it somewhere else 
based on what the game has given you and either recreate just what you found in another location or expanding it to be like the revitalized civilization and using it to inspire your own builds and maybe it turns into your own giant city project or something but just like but taking inspiration from the obvious intentional design and block selection and and building location and all that kind of stuff that, that we found when we went under there because there was different colors and there was different patterns and there was like you said there's yeah. obviously a road and all that kind of stuff is is really really interesting and i do remember thinking like getting inspired from different road textures that we found when we were doing that excavation and thinking like i wonder how i could implement this in some of my own builds to have it be a little bit more you know colorful or more interesting or I mean, we were fine with the one that we were digging up was in the taiga biome, but like, what does this look like in a desert biome? Like, what does this look yes. like if I put it in a, in a, um, savanna or a badlands or something like that? And how would that integrate into the world? And to your points earlier about often finding these things where they're waterlogged or underwater entirely, like the lost city of Atlantis, then again, like building it and reconstructing it on site might not be an option. It might not be a viable fun option. It might be not something people have time for, but they could go down and look and see, okay, well, that's where I think the smelting building was. And this is where I think the glass building was. And this is where the tower was. Maybe I can just reconstruct this and create your own story. Like people could make a museum uh, and maybe like pretend that it's been relocated to the museum in that way. So yeah. there's, I, I definitely respect the amount of emergent gameplay that come from, you know, discovering the the trail ruins and kind of moving forward with them but i i'm definitely in that camp of like i've not really dug one up because at this stage in a six-year-old server like unless i have some idea like that and how to artistically use them the the stuff that drops from them is not really worth the time investment to go down and and dig it all up um, yeah i'd say that i would do it the once and 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 say that i did it um, I, I also uh, I like the idea of doing it with people on the server. Uh, we've done mining runs and some fun server competitions and things like that. And this would be another way to do it without competing against one another, but then just like have some hangout time, you know, like maybe the kids are all in bed with the people that have kids and we can just hang out and chat and just not have it be streamed and just kind of have that kind of chill kind of server moment. So that that's a cool thing about it as well, that it is something that you can generally talk over from a multiplayer standpoint like you have something to talk about but then you don't have to like as you're digging out like countless bits of sand and dirt like you can just talk about whatever's going on you know socially which is nice too um the the loot stuff i i was kind of wondering i know this is kind of a pie in the sky thing but to go from glass panes if minecraft ever introduced glass shards into the game as a way to get stained glass um for people that maybe wanted more of a pattern to stained glass we've talked about that uh we've yeah. talked about this on this sh on the show recently where people were talking about having iron combined with glass to kind of get that wrought iron glass kind of look mm, going on yeah and it would be neat if the way to do that would be you'd have to find the the shards in trail ruins i guess the issue there becomes well they're so rare that you have enough glass shards mm. to make one window and that's it. And then you'd have to travel forever to try and find more, you know, more ruins. So there'd have to be a way to then 
reproduce it after the fact. But if you don't have the recipe until you at least dig up one trail ruin, then that that could be a way to do it. But like, it's one of those things where I'm sure there's a whole bunch of reasons why that's not what they've done. And they've done with just regular glass panes that are in there, stained glass panes. Um, But yeah, I, I feel like for the builders out there, there, there would be definitely more incentive to do the trail ruin digs if there was just something a little bit more unique that you would find that weren't so early game sort of situations uh i I guess the the pottery sherds are the thing that that they have in there that's that unique. but but it's just it's not quite as because it just it like air quotes it just makes a pot you know Mm -hmm. it doesn't it doesn't give you something that you can then use in a wide range of imagination like you can with so many other minecraft blocks like you get a glazed terracotta i can think of a dozen different ways to use glazed terracotta in minecraft right whereas pots i maybe two (laughs) you know like yeah they're they're kind of they're kind of a pot no matter what you do with them and so it'd be interesting to have a little bit more going on there yeah i've seen people do some interesting things with the decorated pots make turning them into bins and stuff with lids and things but even i i agree they're less versatile than say like a full block is um that that is less kind of distinguished by shape and form and uh, and the other thing about and this is something that I do kind of wish were in the vanilla mechanics is the ability to reproduce the pottery shards that you find. And if there were if there if there were ever glass shards in Minecraft, which uh, don't tempt me, <laughs> I would I would love that so much. Um, but uh, if if those ever existed, I would want some way to duplicate them that maybe required a little bit more material than you would think you would use to to actually like make the shirt itself not because i want to be mean but because there's going to be a certain amount of experimentation that you have to do to create a replica and i feel like making it you know if you're reproducing a pottery shirt making it three or four bricks that you have to dedicate to it in addition to the shirt itself and then you get two shirts back um, that that could be one way of doing it, and I have I have made like a da- a data pack for my own personal use that allows me to duplicate pottery shards, just because otherwise, like as as an archaeologist, it, ethically, it, it's hard for me to take archaeological objects and turn them into something else for my own personal gain. Um, in a game where if, if if I'm actually doing the archaeology thing, it's uh it's that's not something you can do in archaeology in real life at all. So uh, so my like my my real life instinct starts to kick in and being like, oh no, this is bad. So uh, so I appreciate having the the ability to make data packs that let you sort of replicate the pottery shards. And I feel like if there were glass shards in the game, then having a way of replicating them in a similar manner would be really cool. One last thing I wanted to touch on before we wrap up our discussion here, and I know we've been going for a while, but obviously when we have a guest on the show, especially a guest with this kind of expertise, it's, you know, naturally we want to keep talking. Um, but That's I w- a very kind way of saying that I ramble a lot. <laughs> hey, hey, we ramble a lot too. It's what we're known for on this show uh, by this point. But um, yeah, I wanted to go back to something from our previous discussion, actually, from episode 211. We had an email from Alejandro T., who wrote in to suggest an expansion to cartographers, suggesting that they offer directions to additional structures and even biomes. And now, more recently, with the experimental villager changes, which as far as we know are not coming to the game formally at any point yet, uh, but we do have cartographers pointing to villages in other biomes, or in the case of jungles and swamps, 
biomes that have unique villages but simply no village structures and this obviously crosses over from archaeology into anthropology a little bit but Mm -hmm. it seems like something that you've got an an interest in yourself and something that sort of occupies an adjacent field to your specialism i was wondering if you had anything to say on how some of the changes to both cartographers and the other changes to specialize certain types of villager trades if that was of interest to you to kind of learn more about villages societal priorities because you've done videos in the past about using specific villagers for specific trades but then not yes. adjusting their trades or trying to get the best possible trades out of a village in the way that other players might if they're more focused on survival gameplay yes so when i'm kind of occupying the archaeology roleplay kind of various characters that i do or various personas um, which are all generally me, but with different flavors of archaeology in them. Um, the the way that I approach villages is I don't bring job blocks into a village. I take whatever villages, like I trade with them in their village. I don't take the villagers out of the village. I don't bring job blocks into the village. And I try to give them a reasonably good trade for, like if there's a trade for for something that's already implemented in the game, then I'll give them the emeralds that they're asking for or whatever. Um, but if it's something where, you know, I've noticed that there's a saddle in one of their chests and I could really use a saddle, then I I try to give them something that has the same value to a saddle to me um, so that so that I'm, you know, not just taking all the stuff from their village. And that's an entirely optional way to play. And I'm very aware that it's effectively shooting myself in the foot to a degree. Um, you know, I am the same person who built 11 Egyptian pyramids. So I've discovered in the last few days that maybe I'm just a glutton for punishment when it comes to <laughs> Minecraft. Um, but in a way, it's Minecraft. So who isn't <laughs> out of Minecraft players? It's more of a pick pick the punishment that you enjoy the most. I mean, as, um, as somebody who's done a, ne- a full netherite beacon in the past, entirely agree. You're talking my yeah, language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I really like the experimental changes, I think it gives a little bit more uh, uniqueness to each village that you come across. And um, it's interesting, Pix, you're talking about anthropology. I actually have a master's in anthropology. Oh, there because you go. <laughs> in, in the United States, archaeology is a sub-discipline of anthropology. So archaeology didn't develop out of history in the US, it developed out of anthropology itself. And uh, in the UK, archaeology is cl- more closely related to history. So I actually have kind of both uh, both fields from both sides of the pond going on in my brain. Um, but anthropologically, yeah, it's I find it fascinating, the choices that have been made for what is available in which biome or which village in which biome. Um, a lot of them are, or a certain number of them are things that make sense. So like swamp biomes have respiration, I think, which makes perfect sense. There's a lot of water around <laughs> around a swamp village. So, uh, so respiration makes sense. Um, or like fire protection in the desert, that also makes sense. Um, and is also important for archaeologists, uh, fire protection, sun protection, put your sunscreen on if you're digging <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, so, so, so some of them are environmental, but then some of them are also um, sort of, there are interesting differences between like the savanna and the plains biome versus the... Uh, what was the other one? The like the jungle biome. So planes, you can get protection three, punch, smite, and bane of arthropods. So it's very like protection and self-defense and combat focused. 
And the Savannah ones, it's sharpness three, knockback, curse of binding and sweeping edge. So these are these are kind of very um, active combat based enchantments. I mean, you can use them for defense as well, but it, they're they're in that kind of combat theme. Whereas in a jungle, you have unbreaking two, feather falling. You do have projectile protection and power, but half of the enchantments that you get in a jungle don't have to do with combat specifically. Um, or in a desert, it's efficiency three, fire protection, thorns, and infinity. So the thorns is the the, the thorns and the fire protection are are kind of defensive. Um, infinity is is a supply situation, and efficiency. It makes sense that they would want to be able to do things quickly because you're in a desert and it's hot. And the sooner that you can get out of the hot sun in the middle of the day, the better off you're gonna be. So, um, so it's, yeah. And also Taiga with the fortune too. Now this is, this is where my memory might be poor. My headspace, headcanon, is that Taiga biomes are often near mountain biomes. Is that, am I misremembering or mischaracterizing that? No, I think it's, it's fairly, they are fairly similar in terms of, yeah. you, you tend to get mountains developing in cold regions like that, yeah. and so you end up with a lot of snowy peaks there. It's not always like a one-to-one, you tiger, therefore yeah. mountain kind of thing, but yeah, you certainly get them adjacent to each other. It's not yeah. like a plains where the elevation really has to kick up in order for you to uh, get into meadows and so forth. Okay, that's good, because I, I thought of this, and then I was like, wait a minute, is that actually how it works? <laughs> so um, so I find it interesting that Taiga Villages, for example, have Fortune 2, and based on the new ore distribution, we know that mountains have a lot more of the ores oftentimes than the caves do, depending on certain, depending on which ore it is. But something like iron ore or, or coal ore, they're often very plentiful in areas that Taiga Villages would have easier access to than potentially say a desert village for example so um so it's it's interesting snow i like that that snowy villages get silk touch presumably so they can mine ice yeah um that's that's pretty cool and then aqua affinity and and frostwalker i enjoy those as well um and uh, and swamp you have depth strider so you can actually move in the swamp which is helpful and mending because if you're living in a swamp things are going to break down really quickly um, probably faster than than well jungle stuff decays really fast in a jungle archaeology in a jungle there's there are only so many things that survive which is actually one of the reasons why I'm a glass specialist because I used to work in Southeast Asia actually in Indonesia and um, the because it's a jungle you don't get organic materials but you do get things like glass and and glass gets preserved really well along with things sometimes like stone and such. But uh, but when it comes to organic stuff, there there's not much <laughs> organically that you get you get preserved in jungle based archaeological sites. Yeah, I think it's something that has only happened to me since we've started discussing archaeology on this sort of level and discussing the ways in which Minecraft can convey information to the player through non text mm -hmm. means. I think it really gives you a different perspective on the way changes like this are suggesting themselves by saying yeah it makes a lot more sense for a snowy village to have uses for silk touch than it does for a desert village where they can just dig yes. up all of the sand that they want it, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it does make so much sense and so I, I think by giving more of that message to the players i think they might 
maybe bring a few more people around to the idea of why some of those changes are being implemented. Obviously, the majority of the player base seems to have an issue with it based on the availability of stuff like mending. And the yeah. in, in my case, I find like the, the esoteric nature of knowing that you have to go to a swamp villager and you know, cure a swamp villager yeah. in order to get hold of one of the more useful enchantments in the game. I think it becomes a challenge that players don't quite have the equipment for yet. But I think yes. give it, giving cartographers maps to other biomes and hinting at the existence of those villages is a step in the right direction. Yeah, I absolutely agree with the the fairly common critiques I've seen of the new villager changes. Um, first, of figuring out that you need to make swamp and jungle villages and how to do that, um, signaling to the player that that is a thing that they need to do, particularly for people who don't necessarily want to spend a bunch of time on the wiki necessarily and would like to to play the game. You know, I'm just thinking of Pirapito and being like he's never going to figure out how to get mending if these <laughs> yeah. changes are implemented. Um, and that's that's a real shame because I love mending as an enchantment. And I also agree with people who have said that, you know, if, if we're going to have difficulty getting mending, then we really should be uh, making, getting, getting rid of or significantly raising the threshold at which you can no longer enchant the same tool or no longer repair the same tool. Yeah. Um, because because nobody wants to be sitting and mining millions of diamonds <laughs> just to just to have enough pickaxes to get you through the day. Um, so I, I very much agree with those. The other thing that I thought was interesting, um, just to slightly double back a little bit, one thing that I noticed in Savannah villages, so we have the armadillos coming to Savannahs, and the armadillos eat spider eyes, but the enchantments in Savannah villages don't have anything to do with spiders. The Bane of Arthropods enchantment is in the Plains biome. So it's interesting to me because that signals either that Savannah villages don't really care too much either about armadillos or that they have so many armadillos around that they're not worried about the spiders because the armadillos take care of them. Um, it's or or it's something to that extent. And and the fact that Savannah's also wouldn't have Bane of Arthropods also suggests that they're not really brewing many potions because they they have the armadillos. The armadillos are taking all the spider eyes, so they're not really using them for fermented spider eyes that go into into potions and things, which is getting into kind of deeper lore between these villages and may probably wasn't at all intended <laughs> by by Minecraft when putting these things together. There is an extent to which each village does need to have four enchantments. Um, otherwise, some of the villages are just going to get ignored. Um, but uh, but I do find it interesting that that the the bane of arthropods enchantment is not in the biome where the armadillos are. Interesting. Well, that's definitely uh, food for thought coming soon to a game theory video near you. I'm <laughs> sure. Um, we would love to keep talking, and we are going to keep talking in the render distance. But that's all for today's episode of the Spawn Chunks. Heather, thank you so much once again for taking the time to share your thoughts and expertise on today's episode. Where can our listeners find more of you and what you do? Well, thank you very much for having me. It's always a delight being on this podcast. I say always, I've been on it twice, but both times have been a delight. So, so always makes sense. Um, you can find me on YouTube. I'm at Archeoplays on YouTube. I'm also at Archeoplays on Twitch, and we'll put links to those in the show notes. 
Um, I do also have a Discord server that we talk about Minecraft and archaeology a lot. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, it's it's open to anybody. You don't have to be subscribed. It's just a place for archaeology nerds to chat about Minecraft and archaeology <laughs> effectively. Um, if you can put up with me talking about gl ancient glass for, <laughs> for long enough. Um, and also, just as a sort of things to come, um, I'm actually going to be starting a cooperative Stardew Valley playthrough, which is not Minecraft, obviously, but I'm going to be doing it with Tadpole Milk in the new year. Um, who was a guest in episode 261. So we're going to be starting that in January. He's never played Stardew Valley before, and I have played far too much Stardew Valley. So uh, so it's it's bound to be a good time. Awesome. Looking forward to that. Uh, as for us, you can find more information about our show and links to some of the stuff that we've talked about today over at thespawnchunks.com. The music for the show was composed by me. The Spawn Chunks is proud to be a listener-supported podcast. If you're getting some value out of the show, why not consider putting some value back in here in 2024? You can visit patreon.com slash thespawnchunks to join our community, where pledging at any level will get you an invite to our patrons-only Discord chat. You can listen to the show live when we record it in Discord every Monday, and occasionally when we record out of schedule like this, we make sure to let our patrons know as well. Uh, we also have monthly Minecraft audio hangouts where our patrons can let us know what they've been up to in Minecraft that month. There are currently, at the time of this recording, 331 paid patrons, and there is always room for more. Special thanks go out to our content engineers, Hunter555, Jumbo Sale, Mind Trip Media, Party Voyager, and Yitz. Thank you for your support on this episode. Sharing the podcast with your friends is the easiest way to support the show. You can find us at The Spawn Chunks on social media. Personal recommendations are by far the best way to share the podcast. Just let a friend know that we are available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and even YouTube. Be sure to leave a rating and a review on your favorite platform. You can email the show at spawnchunkmail at gmail.com. The RSS feed is linked at thespawnchunks.com, and the patron-only RSS feed is on the Patreon page. That's where you can listen to the Render Distance, the extended version of the podcast. My name is Johnny, but online I go by Pixorus. You can find most of what I do at youtube.com slash Pixorus, where the Minecraft Survival Guide is currently in its third season. I also stream three days a week on Twitch and should be back to doing that right after the holidays, although I have some family visiting, so the schedule there may vary. Uh, I'm the voice of the unofficial Hermitcraft recap, which you can find through a quick YouTube search. And aside from that, I'm at Pixorus on both Twitter and Instagram. Joel, where can people find you online? Everything that I'm doing online can be linked at joelduggan.com. That includes the Citadel Cafe, my other podcast about sci-fi and fantasy entertainment. Really enjoying the conversations happening there, especially the holiday roundtable that happens every year. So look for that on your favorite podcast app. I'm Joel Duggan on social media, very easy to find, and Joel Duggan on Twitch, where I stream at least four days a week, balancing right now between Satisfactory and Minecraft. Thanks for visiting the Spawn Chunks. The world outside is infinite, and we're digging up the future.